Thank you, worship team. Thanks for all your hard work. Thanks for coming in early on Saturdays and then coming back and, and getting here early on Sundays. Somebody's got to wake up early and actually get, you know, their oil sort of warmed up and the sludge out of the engine. And, and uh, so they've been wide awake for a long time. You might have just dragged your carcass in here, but uh, they've been here for a while. So they're wide awake and they're ready to worship God. And so I know some of that your face is peeled off right now and you're just like wondering that was just too much too soon at 9.51 in the morning. Well, then don't come to this service. Come to the 11.15. The I- ironic thing is, is it's funny. You come to the 11.15 and they're just as tired and just as late. So I guess it really doesn't matter when you're come. You're going to come in here all disheveled and, um, and you're going to have to have God wake you up. Don't you want God just to wake you up? I don't, I don't know why you would even keep coming back to church if you weren't coming here every single week saying, God, wake me up. I just stay in bed. I don't, I don't know what you're here for, but if you, if you don't come, come hungry, you're not going to get filled. If you don't come here wanting something, thirsty for something, I can tell you, I can, I can give the best message in the world. Jesus gave the best messages in the world and people just left by the droves. It's all about how we posture our hearts, and that's why Jesus would say, let him who has ears, let him hear. Everybody has ears, but not everybody hears. And in order to hear today, I'm just telling you, you have to, you, you literally have to focus your heart and say, I'm coming with anticipation and expectation, and I'm hanging on every word, and I'm banking on the promise that you have something to say to my heart today. No matter what age you are and what stage of life you're in, you got to come saying, you got something for me. And it may just be one word. It may be one sentence. But that's a word that you're going to need to cling to. And it can make all the difference in the world. Amen? I, um, I love this title, Game Changer. Uh, Ryder came up with this whole series. And uh, it was a few months ago, and he went and watched the movie Ready, Ready Player uh, Go, or Ready One Player, or Player One Ready, or whatever the movie is. <laughs> he read the book, and he, he's like, I just got this idea out of this 80s theme and retro thing about game changers and, and game-changing moments in our life, for the good or bad, these moments that sort of everything hinges on these moments. I'm like, this, that's a cool idea. That, that could be a good summer series. And so this week, early in the week, I was thinking, what are some game-changing moments in my life? And there's a plethora of them. And it's hard after you've communicated 21 years. I feel like I've shared with you all my best stories. Like, I don't have any other good stories to share with you. So I'm like, oh, I've shared that one. Oh, I've shared that one. And it kind of stinks um, that I don't really have any more material. And, uh, and I got a lot of life left in ministry. But it's cool. I was thinking, and one thing hit me that I had even forgotten, and it was 1992, and I met my wife Heidi in 1992, and we were freshmen, I was 18, she was 18, we were just so fit and in shape and um, athletic, and, um, but what you don't know, and I've never shared with you, is there was a girl that I asked to go to the Chicago Bulls exhibition game 
at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, New York, before I asked Heidi to go with me. It was probably three days before I asked Heidi to go with me to that game, which led to us getting married and having progeny and, and uh, all this good stuff. Um, but before she said yes to go with me to the game, there was this other girl I asked first, because I thought date, she was dating this other Jason. And, you, and some of you that have been around, I'm the third Jason. She dated Jason Lauterbaugh in high school, broke up with him just before college, got to college. And within a week, she was dating Jason Grove. Um, and then after about a month and a half, she broke up with him and started dating Jason Holdridge. And uh, third time's a charm. <laughs> but she just always, she's one of those women that always needed a relationship, right? She's not here this morning, so I can say that. Um, don't tell her I said that. That's our little secret. What happens in the first service stays in the first service. Tracy? So anyway, <laughs> she rebounded to me. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> this is really bad. She doesn't watch any of the services because she hears me talking all enough, so she'll never even know this happened. It's awesome. <laughs> Um, but before I talked to her and asked her to the game, I asked this girl, Sarah Stitt was her name. I had to call Heidi this week on Monday and be like, there was this girl, I know you know who she is because you're a woman and remember everything about relationships. I don't remember her name. What was her name? And she was like, oh, Sarah Stitt. And she was really, really short and she was cute and she was just a little, you know, firecracker. And I thought she'll go with me because I could tell she was putting out the vibes that she was totally into to me. And I was like, I, you know, you're cute and I don't see a future with you, but I do see a present. And um, I don't know what that means, but <laughs> there's uh, something there. And so I was like, I, can you go to the game? She's like, I wish I could, but I, I can't. I'm in the fall musical and we have rehearsals like, you know, every night. And I was like, oh, that's a bummer. So I was just going to be a third wheel. My brother and the girl he was with, Kathy Peterson at the time, I was just going to go with them. And that was a huge moment because the next day I found out that Heidi uh, wasn't dating anyone and, and we met at the cafetorium. I told a story, got her homework and asked her to go to the game. And October 20th, she went to the game and I've been married to her 21 years. And I could have been married to Sarah Holdridge. <laughs> what was interesting is that Heidi, after she told me who she was, and she's like, I don't know if you remember, but Sarah got kicked out of college because she would steal clothes from everybody in our dorm. And she stole clothes from me and my sister Angela. She was a kleptomaniac. <laughs> and, and so she wrote in a text, she's like, I saved you from a life of crime. <laughs> And I was like, what would it have been like to marry a kleptomaniac and then that's the pastor's wife? You would literally never have a lost and found. You would only have a lost. It would just, it would be horrible. So uh, she did. She saved me from a life of crime and I, I owe her, I owe her a lot. Game changing moment, kind of hilarious, but it is amazing when you go back at your life and you're like, there's so many things that were different because I did that or different because I didn't do that, whether good or bad. And I was thinking about these, you know, people call them pivotal moments or defining moments or, you know, a moment of truth. I, I actually 
um, and doing some research. It's called zero hour. It's not even called the 11th hour. It's called zero hour, that moment of truth, that, that place that some of you might be at right now, which is the turning point or the point of no return. Like you're literally on the cusp of something really, really critical that your future hinges on what you do in this moment, what you say, how you respond, how you act. As I was researching it, my favorite term I'd never heard before was a a, a chirotic moment. And it comes from a Greek word meaning, well, it comes from the word kairos, but the Greeks had two words for time. One was chronos, which is where we get chronology, which is somewhat the, the sequence of time and the passage of time that goes one, two, three in our lifetime. But then there, there, there's chronos, which is this opportune, critical opportune moment of time. And in this critical time, you make an a life-altering decision or you take a life-altering action and that one thing changes everything. It's chronos. It's a moment of time. It's, you know, that, that whole idea of this chirotic moment, kairos. And I was thinking about the passage that I wanted to share with you of the life of David and it's a little bit more of an obscure story that maybe didn't get in flannel graphs in Sunday school if you went to Sunday school growing up. But it's a story in David's life at the end of him running away from Saul, the king at the time, for 12 years. Toward the end of that time, this is when this story took place in 1 Samuel 30. Now just to, to set it up, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel largely are the story of the beginning of Israel having a king, Saul being that first king. And then David, during Saul's kingship, because he was not following after God and not following the heart of God, was not a man after God's own heart, he was anointed king as a little boy and then he killed Goliath, you know, and round and round and round it went and hit the Goliath and all that. Stories that we know of David's life And then he was asked to come into the king's courts and and Saul was jealous and angry, probably had some sort of mental illness, had had sort of chronic anxiety. And so he brought in David because he was amazing at playing the harp and it would soothe him when he would play the harp. But he would play the harp and it was like being in the household of a dysfunctional dad that would love you in one moment, hate you in the next moment, whether they were drunk or not. And he would go out of his mind in some moments and he'd be playing the harp and twice he threw his spear at him, his javelin at him, and almost killed him. And finally, Jonathan, Saul's son, who was David's best friend, said, dude, you got to flee. You got to leave. You you have to get out of here. He's going to kill you. And so he left. He's already anointed king, and he has to hit the road. I don't know what you think the anointed life is, but having the anointing doesn't mean the next day everything's going to be great. We throw that around in Christianity. If you, you, they are so anointed. They are so anointed. Well, he got anointed, and for 12 years, he was a fugitive running for his life. Lonely, depressed. All you have to do is read the Psalms, because most of the Psalms were written in these 12 years, because they were the worst years of his life, but the best years for his heart. And he was growing as a man. 
And along the way, he was in a cave of Adullam by himself and 600 men fled uh, the armies of Israel. They were dysfunctional, motley crew of guys that gathered around him. It said they were in debt and they were distressed and they were discouraged. And so they piled around David, 600 of them, and he started a church plant with that crew. And they had families and, and they had kids together. And we come to the end of the 12 years. For the last two years, he actually learned in the middle of this dysfunction through just his crafty, wily ways to, in a diplomatic way, form a relationship with the Philistines of whom he killed their greatest warrior, Goliath, a decade earlier. He came into an alliance with them through one of the kings of Gath named Achish. And he found favor with Achish. He was a bodyguard of Achish. And it came to the end of the 12 years. And he pleaded for Achish to give him some land. And he gave him some land in the Negev, which was this city called um, uh, Ziglag. Hashtag Ziglag would have been what they would have called it. Love Lowell, right? Hashtag Ziglag. And he got this place and they had to push out you know, the Gerashites and the Geshites and the Cellulites, they're the hardest ones to beat. Um, if you've ever been on a diet, all these ites, they were just the hardest ones to fight out. And they got this land and they started a settlement and they had land even in the midst of dysfunction. And things were just starting to come together. Have you ever like been in a hard time of your life, but in the middle of that hard time, you figure how to get your feet on the ground and settle down and find maybe not normalcy, but a new normal for you and you'll take it? That's where he's at. The last two years of the 12 years of being a fugitive. And he gets land and they have families and they have kids and sons and daughters and there's a little bit of hope happening. Well, at the end of the 12 years, the Israelites and the Philistines are coming to a clash in a battle. I'm setting up for Samuel 30. And in this battle, David's like, let our mighty men fight with you against the Israelites. And uh, the Philistines were like, no, we're not comfortable with that because he is an Israelite. These are all former Israelites. And we feel like they'll get in the the battle and their motherland, the affection for their motherland will overtake them and they'll flank us and turn on us in this battle. They were supposed to be with us and they'll turn against us. Send them home to Ziglag while we fight this battle against the Israelites. And that's where we join the story. David and all his men are sent back to Ziglag while the Philistines go fight the Israelites. And they come back to their hometown. Imagine coming back to Lowell spreading out, sprawling out, scattering out to your different homes and finding this scene. Said David and his men reached Ziglag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziglag and they attacked Ziglag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. And they killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. And when David and his men reached Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. When, when you read the Bible, one of the reasons why God didn't just give us a document 
or an encyclopedia filled with do's and don'ts and principles and rules and regulations, restrictions, requirements, and the next steps. He gave us stories so that we can climb into these stories and say, what would it be like to be in that moment? Because we're creatures that learn best in story. And so if you climb into the story and imagine coming back and seeing your house burn down and realizing that your kids and your spouses had been abducted, what would you do in that moment? That's a game-changing moment right there. Anything unexpected ever happened to you that 10 minutes before you couldn't have guessed that in 10 minutes your whole life was just gonna pivot and change and go south on a grease pole? You remember how, you know, you were just completely unaware, innocent, completely naive that something had actually already occurred and you were just going to get that phone call. And that phone call was going to just put you into shock. Anybody ever been there? Or anybody walked into your house and found papers and they weren't bills on the counter, they were divorce papers? Anybody had a spouse say, I got to talk to you, only to find out that for years they've been carrying on an affair or you caught them in an affair and you went from thinking your family was solid to just being on sinking sand like in a sinkhole in one moment? You ever felt that? You ever gotten that phone call that you dreaded? You ever had a cop show up at your house and knock at your door? And you're just saying to yourself, no, 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 no. You ever been to the doctor and they take a biopsy and then they bring you back to the office and you're hoping against hope it's not what you think it might be and they look at you and you can tell by the look on their face that it's not gonna be good news? Anybody lost something really special? To them all in one moment. Some have reoccurring, how many have reoccurring dreams here? You can raise your hand, just reoccurring dreams, good ones or bad ones. I have a reoccurring conversation with Heidi and I think it's because of people losing children and losing their spouse in some sort of tragedy, tragic accident and we'll be walking on our dirt road and I'll just be like, I, if that happened to me, I don't know how I would get up from that. I, I don't know how, after getting knocked down, I wouldn't just stay down and die. I just don't know how I would get up if I heard that news. If I lost you or the girls, I, I just don't know if I could be in ministry anymore. And we, we both say to ourselves, well, we can say that on this side, but God would would probably give us strength and grace we didn't know that is only accessible to the people that go through that kind of travesty. I, I can imagine being David and, and you're like, 
Dude, I, I was just a shepherd boy. I didn't even ask for any of this to happen. The minute I got anointed king of Israel, I feel like my brothers turned on me. I feel like the king that brought me in his court turned on me. I've been rejected. I've been pushed out. I lost my best friend. I've been on the run. I've been isolated. I've been alone. I've been absolutely brutalized. I've been starving to death. I've been living in caves. I've been homeless. I've been a gadabout. I'm a gypsy. I've literally had to fake being insane in order not to get killed in certain nations just to get food. I have gone through so much rejection. I have been completely just steamrolled in my life, but I could handle anything up to this point other than losing my family. Why couldn't it happen to me? Wouldn't you rather some things happen to you than your kids and your wife? Isn't it almost the hardest thing to feel like, man, if I could just be the one rolled back for that surgery, if I could be the one to hear that news, I could bear up under that. But it's killing me. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's just the last straw. It's the last thing. And I just feel like in this moment, if I'm David, I've been through so much for so long. You can't, you gotta be kidding me. What else possibly could happen in my life? I'm getting gypped, man. I've been strong for so long. I got no more fight left. I'm glad the passage goes on. I don't want to close in prayer quite yet. It says, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. You ever been there? You go to verse six, it said, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Oh, that's great. Each one was bitter in his spirit because his sons and his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Before we get to the encouraged himself in the Lord his God, which is to me the game changer in all of our lives, it's really the only thing our church has to offer, is that no matter what pain you're going through, that there can be a peace in that pain that we can't explain that there is a way to get altitude out of whatever attitude that you are in the middle of right now that you feel like is poisoning your spirit. But before we go there, I, I, I was looking at this passage and I saw these, this progression and I felt this progression in my spirit. I don't know if you'll identify, but this progression of just losing strength Weeping till you have no strength left. Do you know what it's like to just have every day just beat you down and you're just losing strength, you're losing energy, you're, you're losing vitality? And sometimes you have people close to you and they're like, what's going on? Like, I can see it in your eyes. Your countenance is not the same. Something's wrong. You're losing strength. But I, I typically go from losing strength and sometimes I can't even catch myself in that emotional loss 
until the next one where I'm greatly distressed and some sort of oppression hovers over me or depression actually consumes me in my heart and I'm seized with an emotion of discouragement. Anybody here ever been discouraged or depressed? Sometimes I catch myself there and I move right to community because community is the cure in many ways or I moved close to the heart of God and his word and I try to just find the rock that is higher than I as David called it. But I'll be honest with you, sometimes I can't even catch myself there until the next emotion hits and that's bitterness of spirit. That's when I'm redlining. That's when the, the strength's been lost and the toll's taken inside of my spirit and the boa constrictor has just, just wrapped itself around me and it's just squeezed me and the pressure's overwhelming. But I don't really know something's deeply wrong until my, my spirit becomes bitter. I was talking with Ryan and John and we were having our staff review, I think it was in April, and we all asked each other the question, what's your first emotion or response to pressure or being overwhelmed or just overloaded or burnout? And we all said three different words and they all begin with A. One person said anxiety. Another person said apathy. And another one of us said anger. I'll let you figure out who said what. You know what? I, I noticed that all of us are like, we all experience anxiety and apathy and anger, but we all went through them in a different order. One would start with anger, go to you know, apathy, and then end with anxiety. Some, one ended, you know, started with uh, anxiety, went to apathy, and then ended with anger. And one just like goes right to anger and turns to anxiety and ends with apathy. But that's what I see in this passage. I just, it's, it's right here and I might as well bring it up because you'd have to read between the lines, but can you imagine You've lost everything. All of you have lost everything. The unexpected has happened to you. And when you think nothing else unexpected could happen beyond the unexpected, the unexpected happens and insult to injury happens. You all go through losing your wives and your kids and your homes are burned to the ground. And you get together and you weep together in solidarity. And then all of a sudden you hear murmuring and you hear this conspiracy and it's not a conspiracy theory. You're listening to the guys you just wept on the ground with that are conspiring to stone you. Just when you thought it could not get any worse, at least we can just band together and, and we're going to get through this together. We're going to put our heads together. We're going to just find a voice of reason and we're going to get on higher ground and figure out what to do next. And instead of people harnessing their energy, sideways energy happens and friendly fire happens. I don't get how this happens, but I just want to call out the church. We are so bad at this. Something bad will happen. Initially, we'll kind of band together and weep together, but something really, really poisonous happens in our spirit, and we start shooting at each other. 
we start going after each other. We forget that the enemy is the one that has taken our lives and our children, is seeking to steal and kill and destroy, and we're wasting time in bitterness trying to like pin the tail on the donkey and trying to pin it on someone and trying to blame someone. Because here's what bitterness does to me. I don't know if it does it to you. Bitterness to me stops me from a wide gaze. I lose context. I become very myopic and short-sighted. And if you notice, they're weeping together, which is amazing. Those guys go from weeping together and losing strength together to having a bitter spirit. Not David. He went greatly distressed. They went from losing strength to becoming bitter. And bitterness puts on blinders that leads to blaming. It's a coping mechanism. Because your construct has fallen down, you're, you're trying to find a new assumptive like reality because if you don't have an assumptive reality or you don't have a construct to live in you don't know how to move forward and the first construct a bitter person makes is you got to find the villain you got to find the culprit whose fault was this and most of the time we blame god and we blame the people around us that we love and are for us and our battle is not against flesh and blood It's against principalities and powers. And we completely lose sight that the enemy, the longer we sit there in bitterness and plot the stoning of the people around us, we forget who's got our wife and our kids. And every second we lose is a second they're further away. There's a plot twist. Every game-changing moment Every great movie is 600 guys, 601 guys counting David. They're weeping all together. And David doesn't go to bitterness of spirit. David, his first response is to get with the guys. And then when all the world is caving in, he breaks away from the chaotic moment to what we learned earlier is the chaotic moment. The Kairos. And in that moment, he stills himself, he collects himself, and he centers himself by encouraging himself in the Lord. This is one of the only times in the scriptures I know of it spoken of in this language. This has been a game changer for me as it relates to fear and pressure and anxiety and chaos in a world that I I feel like is going berserk around me. Is when I get alone, my first inclination is not God speak to me. I know that sounds heretical. Just hear me out. I used to do that and then I hated it when I just didn't hear his voice. And then it was kind of like, I'm on my own. Forget God, he doesn't talk to me. In this passage, I think there is like a beautiful key that's actually more human in order to access something very spiritual and practical at the same time. That, that David would talk to himself and talk courage into his own heart in the presence of the Lord, his God. I imagine the conversation would go something like this and it would flip back from talking to God to talking to his 
his own soul. Saying, God, what are we going to do? Yo, David, David, you've, you've been in situations before, man. You've made it through before. You've got a good heart. Those, those guys are blaming you. It's not your fault. I don't know what you do and how you treat your soul, but I am brutal on my own soul when I get alone. Part of the reason why some of us here can't take days off is because days off cause us to go literally back crazy. Because when we get with our soul, we are so, so cruel and so critical on ourselves. You know what I would do in this situation if it was me and I broke away? The first thing I would hear in my soul, I don't even have to make this up, is this is your fault. You are the leader. You did not anticipate this. What kind of a leader could you put? You put all of these guys' families at risk. You brought them away from Ziglag. You should have left people behind to protect your wives and your kids that are vulnerable. This is all your fault, dude. You deserve to be stoned. That's how I would talk to myself. How does David connect with the presence of God in his own soul to breathe courage into his own soul in that moment? One of the greatest parts of my sabbatical was learning how to talk to myself kindly. It seems really, really, I think elemental and rudimentary, but I just, over the years, the cruelty to my own soul, I think this is why Jesus said you love your neighbor as you love yourself. How you treat yourself is how you will ultimately treat your neighbor over time. If you're critical to yourself, you will be critical against humanity. You become helpful to yourself, encouraging to yourself, kind to yourself, caring to yourself. You become caring to the people around you. I'm not joking. His first instinct was to encourage himself. I was thinking of courage in the movie, We Bought a Zoo. Remember, it, it, it said something like, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. I think he went on, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way, a leader is no braver than ordinary men. He is simply brave five minutes longer. Sometimes I think David's no different than all those other guys. He's, he's about ready to go down and not get back up too. But the thing that causes some people to get knocked down and say, I'm done, is they just stay in that moment five minutes longer with God in themselves. And they talk themselves into things and out of things in the presence of God. Did you know that's a gift that God has given humanity that crowns us and separates us from the animal kingdom is this ability to actually talk to ourselves in the presence of God. And I cannot tell you how much hangs on those moments in God's presence. You know what's crazy in this story? If, if you read one chapter later, chapter 31, Saul, the king who was chasing him, that made him a fugitive for 12 years, literally falls on his sword and kills himself in the battle against the Philistines. So that was over. One chapter. Can you imagine if he didn't take that moment and pull himself out of the pit with the help of the Lord, his God, 
One chapter later, his whole life was going to change. Three chapters later, he's sitting on a throne and being crowned king of all of Israel. His moment of destiny had arrived. One chapter away from his assailant being dead. Three chapters away from being the king of Israel that he was anointed to be. And his destiny was so close. And this was the final test that led to this destiny. You wonder how many times, if you would have had 20 seconds of bravery to talk yourself out of something or into something, that if it would have changed a moment, that would have changed the future. You're just one chapter away from the good part. You're three chapters away from the good part in your marriage. Don't give up yet. Before you get in the presence of God and talk sense into yourself with a voice of reason, reminding yourself of the faithfulness of God in your story and the strength that he has given you to get through this. If you've made it through that, you can make it through this. You tap into God. And I don't know if you're quiet because you don't know what I'm talking about or you're quiet because God's talking right to your heart. But I wish I was a part of a really soul-filled church that could talk back to me right now and tell me whether I'm just talking to myself. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This is not about your wife. And it's not about your husband. It's not about your kids. It is about you having the courage to get by yourself and to learn this discipline of encouraging yourself in the Lord. I was sitting on the toilet on Friday. (laughs) Amen. That's what you say amen over here? If you're not from Lowell, that won't make sense to you, but... We here, we value loitering in the bathroom, apparently. And I was there, minding my own beeswax, and an ant came out from under our molding. Anybody find an ant just coming out from different places? I'm not talking just these little ants. I'm talking the ones that are on growth hormones. They just are huge. And one little ant came out, and I do what I do to ants. And if you're an animal lover, I don't even know if they're animals to me, they're insects. I just crushed it with my foot, right? And it sort of just curled up in the fetal position and shook, and then it was dead. And I'm like, serves you right. Get out of my house. I'm a protector of my house, okay? And it was about a minute later, a big honking daddy ant came out from the same place. And I just took a little longer to look at it on the linoleum, just kind of wandering around. And then I'm like, I'm just going to crush that ant. So I crushed that ant and did the same thing. And it folded up in the fetal position and just kind of shook. And then it was just like played possum probably for 45 seconds. And I kept looking at it. And all of a sudden, and I I want you to try this at home this week because they're just ants, okay? Um, don't have too much compassion, although I, I began to have compassion on this one ant. One thing moved. I don't know if it was a leg or a tentacle. It moved, and then there was another thing. And ants are crazy creatures of strength. It started dragging itself across the linoleum, and it moved over to the smaller ant, and it picked its 
that ant up off the ground while it was 90% paralyzed and carried it back underneath the molding from whence it came. And I knew I should kill you before you go under the, the, you know, the molding to wherever your colony is, but I didn't have the heart to do it because I had so much respect for the strength of this ant that literally found the strength to not only pick himself, herself, itself up to drag itself over to its comrade to pick up its fallen hero and carry saving Private Ryan like back underneath the molding. I could not believe my eyes. And it hit me in that moment, and you're going to think I'm crazy. In the Proverbs, God says, go to the ant to learn from the ant how to be strong instead of being a sluggard and a coward and a lazy person that gives up. Amen. And I just was, I just said, and you're like, that's why I like you because you're so weird. <laughs> and you say it out loud and I would never say it out loud. I, in that moment, I thought that's who I want to be. When I got get ripped apart, legs get ripped off me, I'm shattered, I don't feel like I can carry myself, let alone anyone else. I wanna curl up, I wanna get in the presence of God, I wanna encourage myself, I wanna say whatever's left, God, it's all yours, and I wanna just go grab anybody I can grab and pick them up and carry them with all the strength I've got. That's, that's, that's gotta be our heart as a church. God, help us to be people who get in your presence and learn to talk kindly to ourselves, to breathe courage into ourselves in the presence of the Lord our God. When all of hell breaks loose around us and we're on the run, an insult is added to injury in that chaotic moment. May we have a chaotic moment, that Kairos moment that. that beautiful critical opportune moment where our action and reaction, that one thing changes everything. May we be game changers in our life for our homes and our marriages and our kids and our community and our world. That when everyone else, all 600 of them, if you look at the ratio, just fall apart, that there's just one person that rises up with wings like eagles and runs and doesn't grow weary and weary and walks and doesn't faint because of the Lord's strength. Remind us and keep us reminding ourselves of your goodness and our strength that you've put into our heart by stamping your image on us and make us people. Make us people, God, that instead of having a breaking point that we would have a turning point in our life that changes everything. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Why don't you stand up? We're going to sing a song just locking in the cornerstone of our life. <laughs>